0: Take your Bibles if you have them, and I want to direct you to Matthew chapter 24, verses 45. Um, Matthew 24 verse 45, and I'm going to read from Matthew 24:45 to chapter 25 verse 13, two parables uh, that the Lord delivered as part of His um, sermon on the Mount of Olives about His second coming. So, Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then he begins, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at, at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 25, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us, both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with them, to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. For the last several weeks that we have been in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we have been considering this rather lengthy sermon from Jesus about his second coming. We believe that the Lord Jesus is going to return, and his return will mark the end of history as we know it. And what Jesus makes abundantly clear in this sermon is that we don't know when he is going to return. He tells us, if you put together what he says here, he tells us he'll come when he's not expected, he'll come sooner than some people think, and he'll come later than others think. No one knows. No one knows when he's going to return. His return is certain. The timing of it is unknown. Actually, that's, that's only, one, only one of the questions that we have about all the events surrounding the return of Jesus when he comes to reign. We have a lot of questions. The Bible just gives us a glimpse of what that day is going to be like. It reminds me a little bit of, of what happened to me on Thursday morning. Thursday morning, Luke got on the bus Uh, It was early in the morning, the sun was just coming up, and I was walking in my house, and I came around the corner, and I could see from an angle, from a distance, through the window at the top of the front door, that little window uh, that's there, I could see the sunrise, and it was beautiful, just wonderful pink-orange purple, just a, a beautiful sunrise. And I decided that I wanted to look at it more. So I walked up to the door, but the the door shut and it was cold outside. So I didn't want to open the door. So I stood on my tiptoes and I looked through the window and it was just as beautiful as I, I thought it would be. The, the sky was filled and, and it was... Uh, early enough in the morning that, that everything was black. The ground was black, except the sky was just brilliantly lit up. And I was standing there on my tiptoes looking uh, at the sunrise, and then I realized that apparently I have skipped leg day one too many times because my calves gave out. So I had to stand up again and look, and I looked for a little bit, and then I, I fell back down. I looked again and again and, and, and fell back down. That's, that's kind of how we approach what the Bible teaches about the second coming. When Christ returns to reign, it will be a wonder. We don't know about it, as much of it as, as we wish, but it's going to be awesome. And in this passage of scripture, Jesus' priority for us is that we get ready. Get ready for his return. Uh, The church father, Augustine, said that the maximum joy that we will experience as followers of Jesus, our maximum joy will come in that day when he returns. There are a lot of joys in this life as we know it right now, but uh, all those joys, they're not perfect joy. They're um, sometimes mixed with sadness, or they're, they're not whole, they're not complete. But in that day when we see Jesus and he reigns, it, it, our joy will be unpolluted. It will be unmixed. It will be full and whole and complete. So when we talk about getting ready for that day, what we're really trying to do is maximize your happiness for eternity. That's what I'd like to do for you uh, today in this study. I want to help you maximize your eternal happiness. There's three parables that Jesus tells in that regard. We're going to think about two of them today. We'll consider one more of them the, the next time that we're together, Lord willing. The, the plan is that on uh, um, January 16th, next Sunday, uh, Dr. Finkbeiner will be here preaching. That will be great. When we return to Matthew, we're going to consider that third parable. Then the week after that, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the picture of judgment that that Jesus gives here. But today, those two parables that I read. And I wonder if you noticed as I read them uh, the similarities in those parables. In both parables, someone is coming, someone is returning. In the first parable, it's the master who's returning. In the second parable, it's the bridegroom who's coming. And in both parables, both of them are delayed. Verse 48 of Matthew chapter 24 says, uh, Suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. He's delayed. And then verse 5 in chapter 25 says, The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Uh, The the original language is the same in both of those verses. There's a delay. And then there's two responses in these parables too. So in both parables, someone is coming. uh, The important person is coming. He's delayed. And there's two different types of responses to that Delay. There's, a, well, on the one hand, it there's a it's a wicked response and a faithful response, or a wise response and a foolish response. I want to talk to you about how to get ready for the return of Jesus. Two ways to do that. Here's the first one. Number one, fulfill your calling. Fulfill your calling. Verse forty-five says that there is a wise. And faithful servant, a wise and faithful servant who, from his master, receives a charge, the responsibility he's given. Before the master leaves, he tells this servant, "Here, I I want you to every day feed the rest of your fellow servants, give them what they need at the proper time, and that's your responsibility." And what is this? What's this slave, this servant, supposed to do while he waits for his master to return? He's supposed to fulfill this charge. Now, in contrast to that servant, um, Jesus offers the possibility that a servant, that servant, could make a a different decision. Uh, Actually, there's not two servants in this parable. There's one servant who could either be wise and faithful or he can be wicked. He's not, not two servants, but one servant who has two options because when you read this, when you hear this, you're supposed to think to yourself, which servant am I? Am I a wise and faithful servant or am I a wicked servant? And the focus of the wicked servant is on the delay of, of the master. He, he thinks to himself that he's got a lot of time to clean up his act. My master staying away a long time. I got a long time to clean up my act. And in the meantime. In the meantime. He is both cruel. And corrupt. He's cruel. In that he beats his fellow servants. And he's corrupt. And then he goes out and parties. He eats and drinks with drunkards. You're supposed to see that contrast between a wise and faithful servant and a wicked servant. And you're also supposed to see the contrast in the consequences for these two types of servants. The first servant, who's wise and faithful, verse 47 tells us that he gets More opportunity, more responsibility. How can you maximize your happiness in eternity? You do it by faithfully fulfilling the charge that Jesus, that the master gives you. What happens to the second servant? Loss. It's odd a little bit the way this wording happens here. Verse 51 says that the master will cut that foolish servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Well, how how can he be cut in pieces? Your translation might say cut in half. How can he be cut in half and then have a place with the hypocrites? I think if he's cut to pieces, he's not going to have a place anywhere. Well, it might be that... that um, Jesus is talking about being cut off, like cut, cut off from the people. That's an Old Testament expression for someone who is disciplined or um, uh, excluded from the tribe. They're cut off from the people. That's, that's a possibility. Or maybe he's just talking about severe punishment. There's severe punishment here. And he has a place, assigned a place with the hypocrites. Remember chapter 23 Jesus pronounces all the woes, the woe to you, Pharisees, and he uses that word, uh, religious leaders, and he uses that word hypocrite over and over and over again. They're in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, terrible loss, judgment. Now, some of you, and this is a little bit of uh, inside theology, I suppose, some of you may be coming to this parable and you have questions because there's two different types of servants here. How is it that one of them receives eternal reward and one of them receives eternal uh, loss? You're wondering about eternal security. If, is it possible that God could have servants uh, right now who would, uh, through their wickedness, lose their place in the kingdom of heaven? Now, th- that really, that question is, is kind of beyond the scope of this parable. It's not, a, not an issue here that Jesus is dealing with. If we have to say something about it, though, I think what we should say is that the lack of preparation on the part of the wicked servant, on his part, reveals to us that he's not really correctly related to the master. He's someone who's on the periphery of the faith, but not a genuine believer. The same thing happens with the wise and the foolish virgins. Like verse 12, uh, the master, or the bridegroom says to the foolish virgins, verse 12 of chapter 25, I don't know you to be rightly related to the master, to be rightly related to the bridegroom, is to prepare for his return. Jesus' expectation is that his people, his genuine people, his, uh, his true followers, will hear what he says in this parable, will pursue the promises that he offers, and will heed the warning. One of the signs of genuine faith is that you are preparing for his return. That's a little bit of a side. More important, perhaps, at this point in time, is to ask this question, who's this parable about? Who should be listening carefully to it? Well, all of us, except for for a long time, many Bible scholars have looked at this parable and thought in particular about Bible teachers in the church, pastors, elders, elders. And it makes a lot of sense that, 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 they, that this would be the group of people that Jesus would have in mind with this parable. Bible teachers in the church, elders in the church, pastors in the church have been given a charge. They're responsible to feed the servants. Don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake of believing that the, the, your fellow servants in the church of Jesus Christ are yours to treat as you will. Don't believe that your don't make the mistake of believing that your authority means that there is no accountability for you in how you discharge the responsibilities that Jesus has given you. Along these lines it makes me think of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13:17. Look at what Hebrews 13:17 says. Have confidence speaking to the congregation Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Take up this parable. Listen, listen to it, Joel Divini. Listen to it, Scott Harrison. This is a word for you, Bob Pletcher, Jeff Bittner, Ryan Nelson, Don Brubaker, you have a master and you are accountable to him for how you have cared for his people. Pay attention, Wayne Schoonmaker, Joe Horst, Ed Hare, Jason Hare. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but he's coming back. And whatever authority he has entrusted to you is not so that you may mistreat his people, but so that you might be faithful in caring for his people, feeding them what they need when they need it. Now, some of you were in the process of trying to recruit new elders, nominate new elders and appoint as a congregation, recognize uh, men that God has given to the church uh, with gifts and skills and um, character necessary, character in leading the church, and I suppose if I were sitting in that, if I were sitting and listening to this, and someone had asked me about being an elder, and I would hear this passage and think about this accountability, I might, I, I would seriously be considering whether or not I'd want to do that. But remember the reward. Remember the reward, verse forty-seven. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Or, think of 1 Peter 5.4. 1 Peter 5.4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you elders will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So we can read this parable and we can think of... Bible teachers in the church, elders in the church, pastors in the church, who have been given a responsibility by the master to care for his people. That's true. But I also, I think we should take this parable a little bit, we we can open this a little bit more. This is a parable for anyone with a calling from God. And it's a reminder, do what God has called you to do. Some of you have callings from God to apply at church. Do what God has called you to do in your home. Do what God has called you to do at work. Faithfully fulfill your calling. Now, does it surprise you? Some of you might be surprised by this if you think about it. Jesus tells us to look forward to his return by looking down at what he has called us to do. Donna Spratt is a volunteer youth leader, and she writes about a a, a Sunday when her youth pastor uh, was trying to get the students in the youth ministry to think uh, about their core values. So he asked them a question. It's a question that we ask one another sometimes for for conversation. Uh, The question was this, what would you do if you... Uh, what would you do if your doctor told you you had 24 hours to live? And the students gave good answers. They were thoughtful, positive answers. One of the kids in the group, they'll said, I'd go get a second opinion. We think, and answer to that question, what would you do if you had 24 hours to live? We think about big things. Final pleasures. We think about things like making amends. I'd go, I'd go reconcile with my brother or... I would would say goodbye to my kids. We we think about big things. What Jesus directs us toward, in light of the fact that we don't know when he is going to return, and it could be any time, what he directs us toward is what? Ordinary faithfulness. Fulfilling faithfully the calling that God has given to you. Have you ever heard the expression, I'm sure you have. That person is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. That that, that sentence makes no sense in light of this paragraph because heavenly-minded people, according to Jesus in this parable here, heavenly-minded people are nothing but earthly good. They take care of his people. They fulfill, they care for the ones and the work that, that Jesus has set before you. Can I remind you, as we read this parable, that there's great reward for small acts of daily faithfulness? Cutting out Sunday school papers, folding socks, making sure you clock in on time when you're supposed to be at work, running to the hardware store for for more nails and screws when the job site needs them, Reviewing your discussion questions for growth group, there's great reward for small daily acts of faithfulness. There's one more thing to notice in this regard before we we move on. It's interesting to think about how this parable helps us when it comes to self control. So, anybody in the room, anybody listening to me who needs help in uh, growing in your self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's very important to think about and to talk about. And and you, we, we we approach this issue sometimes this way. As a parent, one of your goals is to cultivate self-control in your children. Because what toddlers have no self-control. Little children have no self-control. Uh, if if left to their own devices, they would eat nothing but skittles and potato chips and they never would put themselves to bed at a reasonable hour. They have no self-control. So one of the tasks of parenting, we talk about it this way, one of the tasks of parenting is to cultivate self-control. You control them to the best of your ability when they're toddlers and you're trying to cultivate in them this sense of self-control so that when they're older, they live controlled, disciplined lives. Did that work out well for you? Do any of you ever, adults ever get discouraged by your lack of self-control? You look within and, and you just don't have the self-control that you want? What's striking in this parable is that Jesus suggests that self-control is not just an internal, personal, individual quality, but it's one that grows actually from our confidence in Jesus' return. Believing that Jesus could return at any point in time is enough, Jesus says, to keep his servants home at night and not out partying. Do you ever think about self control that way? The Apostle Paul did, because look what he says in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. Here's the self control piece. To ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, there it is, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, (laughs) the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, the Holy Spirit cultivates self-control in us in part by focusing our attention on the fact that Christ is coming. We don't know when it will be, but one of the ways that we get ready for Christ's return is by faithfully fulfilling the calling that he has given us. Now let's move on here to this second parable. H- how else do we get ready for Christ's return? Number two, prepare to persevere. Prepare to persevere. Now notice here in the first parable, the master returned sooner than expected. The wicked servant thought he had forever. He thought he had a long time to get his act together. But the master returned sooner. Now in this second parable, he returns later than expected. And these five uh, foolish virgins had no persevering mindset. They had no idea that they would have to persevere while they wait. Now, notice how complex this chapter of Scripture is. Jesus could return today, so be busy about what he has called you to do today. But he could return in a 100 years, so be ready for the long haul. Let's think about how this works. The scene in the second parable is a, a wedding. We don't know everything about first century Palestinian weddings uh, as much as we would want to know sometimes, but um, we know a few things. We know that most wedding uh, uh, wedding planning started with the betrothal. We're familiar with this because of Joseph and Mary. They get betrothed. Betrothal takes a divorce to break, and betrothals lasted usually about a year. And then on the appointed day, the bridegroom and his party would leave his house and come to the bride's house. The wedding ceremony would take place at the bride's house. And then everyone, the bride and the bridegroom, would leave the bride's house and go to the bridegroom's house where there would be the great feast. The wedding feast would take place at his family home. And often that feast lasted several days. Now in this parable the, the focus is on these 10 virgins, 10 young women who are members of the wedding party. And and their responsibility maybe they'd help the bride get ready, that might be their job like a bridesmaid today. But in this parable here, their focus of their responsibility is on providing light. <laughs> Because the bridegroom would go back, uh, the bridegroom and the bride and the whole party would go back to his house, it would be dark, and they'd need light. And that's what these ten women were supposed to do. The text says lamps. my translation says lamps. you should probably think torches. That might be more accurate, torches. Long sticks with a bundle of cloth on the end, and you would soak that cloth with oil and light it, and that would provide your light. And the text says five of these young women were wise. And they were wise in that they brought extra oil. They they were prepared for a delay. Five of them were foolish. They gave no thought at all to the fact that that, that it might be a delay. So they all, on the appointed day, when they showed up to wait, they came with ragged, uh, oil-soaked torches. They were ready. There was a delay, though, and by the time the bridegroom came, they needed to re soak that, that cloth so they could relight their torches. Five of them thought about the possibility of delay, five of them gave no thought at all, and the bridegroom was delayed. Now I want to read verses 7 through 9 again, and I want you to think about the response and the conversation that takes place here. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 7. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, what do you think about the wise bridesmaids, the wise virgins, and their response to the foolish? Does it seem selfish to you that they're not sharing I admit that's a secondary question for the parable. But, but it does deserve some thought. couple things. First, I, these wise virgins are thinking primarily about the bridegroom. He has to be welcomed. He has to be welcomed. And the lights need to be on for him. He's the focus. <laughs> In this parable, there's no mention of the bride. S- sorry. Again, secondary to Jesus' point. The bridegroom, it's his procession. His is the gladness for this day. He gets the bride. And 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 there must be light for him. So I think these wise young women are thinking about the bridegroom. If, if we have to go further, though, I think that this parable also does remind us that there is... There, there are some spiritual preparations that cannot be shared. Among them are faith. Among those chiefly and primarily that I'm thinking of this morning, today, it's faith. Faith is not something that can be shared. Faith must be your own. You must believe on your own. No one can believe the good news about Jesus for you. In thinking about this, I want want to talk to you for just a couple of minutes about how we think about baptism at our house. We believe that baptism is really important. Baptism is the public announcement of your faith in Jesus. When you get baptized, you identify publicly with him, with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a public announcement of your faith. Now, what has happened in our house over the years is that the children, because we teach them from the time they're born, that Jesus is the Savior and Jesus is the one you must turn to in faith. Um, our, our children will, will, will say to us, they'll say things like, I believe, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And and whenever our children make a profession like that or speak about their own spiritual progress, that is something to be celebrated in Christ with great gladness. I'm so happy. It makes me so happy to hear that you know and believe that Jesus is your Savior. We want to affirm every step, every, every confession. But then, sometimes the question comes, I believe that Jesus is my Savior, so I want to be baptized. And there, seven, eight, nine. Here's what, what we say. I'd say, that is awesome. It is awesome that you want to publicly testify to your faith in Jesus. I'm so happy about that. But I say, you know, one of the things that I want for you is I want you to be sure that your faith is your own. That you're not, that you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins because mommy and daddy want you to believe that. I want you to be baptized when you know for sure that your faith is your own. And you know what? That, that sometimes takes a, a little bit of time. Now notice here what I'm doing. The Bible does not specifically address when little children who believe should be baptized. There are people in the Bible who are baptized immediately. In fact, most of the people who are baptized are baptized very soon after they express faith. But they're adults who are very familiar with the Bible, very familiar with different views of the world. That's not really the case, though, with nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds. So I'm, I'm trying to make a wise decision here. I say to my children... I want you to be baptized when you know for sure that your faith is your own. And sometimes that takes time. It takes exposure to other views and other ideas. And I want you to be able to have enough experience in following Jesus so that you can say, this person, this friend of mine doesn't follow Jesus, but I want to follow Jesus. I see what choice they're making and I'm going to make a different choice. I believe for my own sake. Listen to me, you who are in fifth grade or seventh grade or maybe in ninth grade even, you must believe yourself. You yourself must believe. Uh, you might not know this, but when your parents get invited to some sort of formal event, if, if the whole family is invited, the invitation will come, a very thick uh, 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 envelope comes to your house. And when, when my, my children are invited to an event, let's say it's a wedding that requires a response. We're talking about a wedding here in Matthew chapter 25. The envelope will come and it's addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Joel Divini and family. My name's on the invitation. There it is, Joel Divini. And my wife's name is there in the invitation too. She's the Mrs. Joel Divini. Now that's an old-fashioned way to refer to uh, someone's wife, to say Mrs. Joel DeVinny, but somehow my wife manages to survive despite the patriarchy. Um, but the children, they're not listed by name, they're just and family. They're invited because of their connection to me. Their names are not, aren't on the invitation, they're invited only in their relationship to me. And when I fill out the response card for a wedding, uh, if 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 I put down five, Mr. and Mrs. Joel Devaney and family, the three kids, five, that may be good for a wedding invitation, but it is not good for heaven. The good news is for you, and you must believe. You must recognize the good news that's in the Bible. The good news that begins with bad news. That you are separated from God because of your sin. You have disobeyed God. And God, because he loves you, sent his son, Jesus, to be the Savior. He obeyed every single time. But he died on the cross... Suffering that terrible way, not because he was a sinner, but because we're sinners and he died as our substitute for us. He died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and now he gives life and forgiveness to all who will turn and trust in him as Savior. And that invitation is for you. Your names on the invitation from God to turn and trust in Jesus. You must turn and trust in him. Your parents can't believe for you. Trust me, I've talked to a lot of parents who really wish they could believe for their children. They really wish that they they could take some of their faith and give it to their children and that they could share it with their children and that their children would be saved because their parents believe. You will not go to heaven because your parents believe in Jesus. You won't go to heaven because your grandparents believe in Jesus. You, you must respond to the invitation from God. This might be a good conversation for you to have with your parents today. Some of you, I know... Some of you talk about this all the time, and it's wonderful. And you talk to your parents all the time about your faith in Jesus and your desire to obey Jesus and follow him. But maybe some of you, it's been a while since you've had a conversation like this. It's it's difficult. Maybe sometimes when you're 13 or 14 to have spiritual conversations like this, even with, with your parents. Maybe somebody, maybe you could sit down today sometime and maybe your dad would begin a conversation and say, hey, you know, Pastor Joel was talking about how each person has to believe. Where, where are you in that, in, in, in believing in Jesus? Or maybe you could start that conversation. Here, I'll give you permission, and this is only good for this topic of conversation. Maybe when your parents are tucking you into ni- to bed at night. Uh, you don't like to go to bed And you use any excuse possible to stay up later. I understand that. But I'm giving you permission to talk about this topic and this topic alone when when it's time to go to bed. Maybe that'd be a time when, when you could talk to them and say, Hey, you know, Pastor Joel was talking about this, and I want you to know that I believe myself. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That'd be a good conversation for you to have. There's spiritual preparation that you cannot share. Now I've gone beyond the bounds of this text here a a little bit. Notice the the suggestion that the wise virgins make to the foolish virgins. They say, go buy some oil. And they do. They go to the 24-hour torch oil store They buy the oil, and they show up, but they're too late for the party. They're not recognizable as as part of the wedding party, and they go to the wedding banquet, and the door is shut, and they can't get in. It's too late. They're excluded. There is coming a day when it will be too late to respond to the good news that Jesus is the Savior. It's pictured here as a wedding feast. The wedding feast great joy, occasion of great joy don't miss it because there's a possibility that it may be too late if you delay the primary lesson of this parable is you need to get ready for the second coming of Jesus by preparing for the long haul he may be delayed a long time which means that you may as you follow him have to You'll have days of great gladness. You'll have days of great sadness. You may endure, as a follower of Jesus, a whole host of tests and trials and troubles and hardship. Prepare to persevere. There'll be seasons of adversity, seasons of prosperity. It may be a long time before Jesus comes. Follow him through easy times and hard times. I think this is why one of the authors, uh, why the author of the, of the book of Hebrews um, wrote about faith in the way he did. Look what he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All these people, he writes about those who walk by faith, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Every true follower of Jesus is in it for the long haul. Why are we in it for the long haul? Because we know who it is we're waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus to return, and he's worth waiting for. I have a confession to you, uh, to make to you. Some of you uh, already know this about me. I come from a long line of overpackers. When it comes time for us to get ready for a vacation or to go on a trip, we in my family, not my wife, not my children, me, I way overpack. Some of you, some of you, when it's time for you to go on, on a trip, you get up 30 minutes early on the day that you're supposed to leave, and you throw a few things in a backpack, and you walk out the house, and you're ready to go. And I look at you with great envy and great fear for you about what's going to happen to you on your vacation. I want the trip to go well, so I really plan and take everything that I possibly might need for my, my trip up. Uh, Hey, you're going to Florida for two weeks in July? You better take three sweatshirts. Three sweatshirts. It's Florida. It's July. Yeah, but you know, you never know when an unexpected cold front might come through and you might get one of those sweatshirts dirty and you might have to wear one of the other sweatshirts. I have already at my house a bathroom bag, a bag with all my bathroom stuff in it. It's already packed and it has in it, I can tell you, a pair of nail clippers because you never know. I have, I have nail clippers in the bathroom bag. I have nail clippers at but bedside table because you never know when you're going to get a nail on vacation. And that's so annoying. You want to be ready for it. So you better have your travel nail clippers with you. Don't get me started about books. Uh, I pack books. You're going to be gone for five days. You know what you need and You probably need eight books. And they better be at least 500 pages each. I have never in my life read 4,000 pages in five days, but you never know. You never know, and you better be prepared, right? I come from a long line of overpackers. I mean, summer's coming in about six months, right? Summer's coming in about six months. I hope that some of you have started your packing lists. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Won't you think with me just for a little bit about getting ready for his return? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you and we are thankful to you for this instruction from the Lord Jesus. And, and it was so important to him that his people would be ready for his return. Lord, um, I do pray that you would help us. There are your followers who have, when they've thought about your return, done strange things. They've sold their houses and their businesses and they've uh, just sat around waiting and and they, they haven't engaged themselves in ordinary, everyday faithfulness. Keep us focused on the calling that you have given to us. Some as elders in this church, Bible teachers, pastors, We'll we'll prepare for your coming by setting the table every day. Lord, there's people in this room who understand what it's like to persevere for decades in following Jesus. Help us to get ready for your return by persevering. Father, I am thankful to you for this technology that we're using that enables us to... um, Study your word as best we can, despite storms and despite uh, pandemics. I'm thankful to you for it, Lord. In your mercy, we pray that you would provide an end to this. We thank you that this wave appears to be not as bad as others, though our hospitals are very full. So, show mercy, grant us patience, kindness with one another, healing for those who are ailing, particularly. Lord, um, cultivate in us, we pray, a longing and a desire with gladness for Jesus to come back soon. Remind us that his return is the source of our great hope in this life. Help us that we might maximize our happiness for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. God be with you.